We will be in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. If you have a Bible and want to open there. Um, if you don't, we do have the text on the screen. But uh, before we get going, let's pray. Lord, I, I pray that we would just keep in mind the, the amazing results of your work that are in front of our eyes all the time. That we at the ends of the earth have received your grace have known your truth, have, have received your salvation that is found in Jesus Christ. Let us rejoice in that today as we open your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, some of you guys know this. Uh, others of you, it would be news that uh, I am a nerd. Um, I know I don't, uh, I don't always present as a nerd, but I have a good resume for being a nerd I have read Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, The Divine Comedy, and Dune countless times. Okay, and I, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm feeling like I need to read those again right now. Um, I like all versions of Settlers of Catan. Okay, so if you're up for a game, I am too. I'm ready to discuss Blade Runner in depth right now. Uh, you know, I could be on a panel on Blade Runner. Uh, okay, if that's not nerdy enough for you, how's this? This is true. I have written an entire unreleased album of songs, first-person Shakespearean character songs. This is true. I have 10 songs so far. I'm still working on it. Is this nerdy enough for you guys yet? Uh, and, and I grew up a nerd, too. Uh, and I grew up in the 70s and 80s. Nowadays, nerd is cool. It was not so in the 70s and 80s. Right? Nerd was something you did not want to be. If you watch 80s movies, the best thing that happens to nerds in 80s movies is they're not a nerd by the end of it. In The Breakfast Club, the nerd is the only one that ends up single. Okay? That's, that's what, it, you know, people who grew up in the 70s and 80s know. And, and I, was, I, was, I was rocking the nerd game hard. Dungeons and Dragons at lunch, thank you very much. I had a severe overbite, and therefore a headgear. So I had an overbite and a headgear, and I talked like this. <laughs> Embraces, bowl cut that my mom did, playing Dungeons and Dragons. You could imagine how my life was. And there comes a moment for every nerd when you find out you're a nerd, right? Like when that, when that is made clear to you. And, and it was one day when I was about nine years old, I had moved from New York to California, and so I still had a pretty good Brooklyn accent. And, um, and I was running around on the playground, as boys do, with my friend Clay, who was cool, and my friend Allie, who's a, a dude Allie, also cool. And we were running around in whatever game we were playing. It doesn't, probably something with an inappropriate name at this point. Um, but Allie just throws up his hands in frustration suddenly and says, I'm surrounded by nerds. And I was like, dang, where are those nerds he's surrounded by? Man, we got to get away from these nerds. And then I realized he was looking at and talking about me. And in that moment, I understood that there were those people who were in and there were those people who are out. And I was one of the ones who was out. Epilogue. About 10 years later, I was at a big punk rock show. 
And this was before punk rock was appearing in kids' movies. Right? This was still dangerous punk rock fights and that sort of thing. And if you looked at someone askance, you, you might catch it. I was sitting there waiting for the next band to start standing with my friends. This was my world. And I look, and there's some people I recognize that look very out of place. It was Allie, the same guy, and two girls that were part of the in crowd. They were wearing white sweaters and pearls at a punk rock show. Kid you not. And they were looking awfully nervous. And I was like, oh, man. And I see them look at me, recognize me, and I read their lips. They say, it's Matt. And they came running over to me, like very, like hopefully, hopefully that I would be some sort of shelter in this storm that they were experiencing. And I ignored them. But then, you know, like, I remember what it was to be the one who was out when other people are in. And that made it sweet, like, like sweet revenge ice cream that I was serving cold. Because the only thing that was better than being in at that moment was that they were out. This is, this is the dynamic that is everywhere in our society. There are those who are in and those who are out. And part of what makes being in so delicious is that others can't have it and others are out. This is the basis of fashion. Clothes, language, manners, hobbies. There are things that make you in. There are things that make you out. And we're all desperate to put on and do the things that make you in and avoid the things that make you out. And you find out, oh no, I've been wearing something that makes me out. And you burn it, right? For a lot of us, there are certain identities, like demographic things that make us feel in or make us feel out. In some spaces, what I am, a white dude, is the innest you can be. In others, it's the outest you can be. For some of us, right, like it's you're trying to achieve some sort of elite status, elite academically, elite financially, elite achievement-wise, so that you can be in that rare company where you're in, in among the elite, and you can Look down your nose, the rest of us, we're not. Have you ever sat in business class seats? Anyone ever been mistakenly upgraded? Oh yeah, that feels good, doesn't it? Don't you love those people walking by? Yeah, get back there to coach where you belong. I'm going to be up here getting free drinks and a hot towel with leg room. You know, something that being a nerd, and the other of you who are nerds as well, knowing things that other people don't know, oh, num, 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 I'm in, right? Some of you, it's like, oh, well, you know, like, I'm, a, I'm like a uni- unicorn on the Enneagram, and I've got, I've got like a, a two-wing and a ten-wing, so I'm like a, a, a winged Enneagram unicorn, you know, and that's what makes me in, and, and you aren't. And, and other people don't have this. They're not like me. They don't get what it is to be a double-winged Enneagram unicorn. We all want to be in. And we hate being out. Yet, we love being in when others are out. And that's just the facts. What about in the church? Depending on the church, 
there are a number of different factors that can make you in or out, right? Ethnicity, your moral life, your political stances, your age, your marital status. Now, that's true today, but in, in, the, in the time of the writing of our text, the in-group for the people of God was way more intense, way more specific, okay? If you were to think of global population, the people who, 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 who were in with God or were thought to be in with God, you had to be Jewish, for starters, male, and then a very pious life. Those were the people who were the, the in-people. Those were the people who were like the representatives. This is who God loves and favors. That's what the understanding was. If you did not fall into those three things, they wouldn't even talk to you, much less say, hey, you're part of my worshiping community, worshiping the one true God, just like me. Which makes our text today very, very remarkable. What we're going to do is we're going to just pay close attention to the text first. And then we're going to talk about what it means, okay? So all the details I'm laying out here, historical background, it has a purpose, I promise. It's going to help us understand the message that Matthew is trying to communicate to us. So let's read together. Matthew chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Oh dear. This has happened, guys. <laughs> After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So we meet the first important characters here, the Magi. Who are these guys? All right. Now, all respect to the Three Kings song, it's probably not super accurate. The Bible never says how many there are. There's three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Doesn't mean that each, there was one guy carrying each. Could have been two, could have been 20. All right, and they were not kings, they were magi. This is a very specific thing. Okay, someone push the boring button for me. Here we go. Historical background for magi. These folks came from what is now Iran or Iraq, from Persia, which was under Parthian control at this point, right? This was the, the Parthian Empire. If you ever look at a map of ancient Rome, um, the Parthian Empire, the Romans could never come to grips with it. This is, this, is, this is a group of fighters the Romans didn't want it with. All right, so these guys were coming from beyond, not just Judea, but from beyond the Roman Empire itself, okay? And the, the, best, the best analogy I could think of would be is if space aliens visited our town. The way they dressed, their mannerisms, the way they looked would be completely out of the realm of experience of these people in Jerusalem. Now, what the Magi were, were not kings. They were more like, like advisors to the kings. Okay, it's where we get the, the word magic, actually, or magician. And, and what they were was the intelligentsia. These were the people who were the most educated. They understood, you know, they, they were doing science and they did a considerable amount of science. These would have been uh, the people who were consulted on astrology as we see them doing here. They believed that heaven, the, the heavens informed what was happening on earth. And if you were going to be a good advisor to a king, you needed to know what was going on with the stars, right? Uh, they, they were the religious class, okay? And they would have been phenomenally wealthy, 
like think tech billionaire wealthy, like way wealthier than anyone in our society, and um, would have been by religion Zoroastrian, if you know what that is. Um, and they would have been traveling big. They wouldn't have just been a couple of guys. All right, these were people who, when they traveled, they might have been carried, but they would certainly have an armed escort to come down the Silk Road. They would have traveled with sumptuous tents. All of the, they would have had their cooks with them. They would have had, you know, at night you camp out, dancing girls and singers come out, that sort of thing. They were living big. So don't picture a couple of guys coming into Jerusalem. Picture, picture like Taylor Swift's tour coming in to Jerusalem, right? Like this huge cavalcade of opulence, all right? So I hope, I hope you have a better understanding now of who the Magi were. Um, but then we meet someone else who's important. Verse 3, when King Herod heard this, was dis- this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with them. There's a rule. If Herod's nervous, everyone's nervous. King Herod, you may have heard of him. He was known for two things. He was a great builder. Okay? He, he built the city of Caesarea. He founded it. He also built up uh, the, the temple in Jerusalem to the point where they called it Herod's temple. He did all these enhancements. All right? He was, he was also not Jewish. He was Idumean. Um, so he was not seen as a legitimate king. He was not of the line of David. He wasn't even Jewish. He was also known for his paranoid violence. If, if Herod got a little nervous, he'd start killing people until he felt secure. So these guys coming, saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? Well, Herod hasn't had a baby, right? He's the king of the Jews. So he's like, oh, there's someone who's been born who's going to come from my throne. And he's correct. But when the news travels through Jerusalem, what, the, what this cavalcade was asking about, everyone's like, uh-oh, <laughs> right? When Herod's nervous, everyone's nervous. But Herod hides his anxiety. Verse 4, when he had called together all the, people's chief, uh, all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. So he gets together the brain trust uh, of experts on the, on the Bible. And they say, in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So, like, there's a prophecy. We know the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. Then look at what happens in verse 7. Then Herod called the Magi secretly. Now, these Magi were accustomed to dealing with kings. So, my guess is they knew something was afoot when they are summoned to a secret meeting. Uh, Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Now, Real quick, this is hard to imagine and hard to understand. Like, what was the deal with the star? Like, how does a star, was it like a little light bright follow the bouncy ball thing to the house? 
It's not really clear. Matthew doesn't make it clear. Um, but like the one thing that we need to remember is these, these magi, they didn't have internet or anything like that. You know what they did at night? Looked at the stars. They studied the heavens. That's it. And so reading stars for them, you know, like, like we've got some coders in this room. And when I see code and those of us who are not coders, what does it look like? It looks like nonsense, just pure nonsense, right? But for those of you who know code, you look at it and you're like, I see a web page or well, I think that's what it is, right? <laughs> yeah, but it makes sense to you. In the same way, you look at the night sky, you're like, well, that's a lot of stars. And the Magi would be like, well, this is going to happen. Right? They're, they're, it's, it means something to them. So perhaps it's just kind of beyond our comprehension to understand what they were seeing when they uh, looked at the star. But the, the better question is, uh, is, well, we'll get to it. Anyway, it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. That's a little bit of an under-translation. The Greek, there's like four words to say, they rejoiced with great, awesome rejoicing. My question, and this is the better question, is why were these guys so overjoyed to find the king of the Jews? It, Matthew doesn't tell us, but the, clear, the thing that's clear is that they were over the moon, that they had found him. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down, bowed down and worshipped him. Now, the translation worshipped is a maybe. Uh, it's the same word that you would use for, like, paying homage to a king in the east. And you would, in the east, you would fall down and you would prostrate yourself before the king and give gifts. That, that's what they're doing. They're treating him like he's their king. They bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold frankincense and myrrh, which would, be, would have been like, they gave him a Rolex. You know, it's like really high-end uh, gifts. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the, what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. Okay, now, re real quick, for those, I, I want to see if anyone's interested. The, the slaughter of the innocents, as it's called, uh, which Herod is about to do, he's about to send the goon squad to Bethlehem to kill all the baby boys two years and under. Um, a lot of the time there's, if you see Time magazine, like, who is Herod, that sort of thing. Like I've seen about five or six different things on Herod. They all say the same thing. Did he really do it? You know, is the Bible actually telling the truth or is just the legend? Anyone you want to go into that? Interested? Okay, because you've, you've seen these specials. Okay. All right, so they, you'll get these like sniffy academics. Well, there's actually no evidence that Herod did this. The Bible can't be trusted, that sort of thing. Um, all right, so is it true that there are no accounts of Herod killing the boys in Bethlehem besides Matthew? Uh, almost true. There's one other, okay? But it's considered bad evidence. Fine. So does that mean... Like the Bible is just telling us lies um, and making things up. 
All right. So let me tell you a little bit of Herod's rap sheet. Things that, that the historian Josephus, who historians really like, uh, tell us Herod did. He killed his favorite wife. He killed multiple of his own sons. He killed many of his own officials. In fact, one of the Caesars said, it is better to be Herod's pig than his son. Safer. Okay? Uh, upon his death, he ordered that all of the Jewish nobles were to be also put to death. Why? So that everybody would be truly sad during his funeral. They didn't carry this out, but this is, this is the guy. All right? So Bethlehem was a tiny little town, under 1,000 people at most estimates. The maximum number of baby boys under two would have been in the neighborhood of 20. Okay? Herod sending a goon squad to kill 20, 20 babies would be low on the rap sheet. It would be one of the less outrageous things he had done. And by the way, yeah, that's not going to end up in historical records. Do you know what Josephus was? He was a court historian for the Flavian emperors. Okay? Like, you don't say, hey, put it. I'm about to, uh, you know, send the goon squad to kill a bunch of kids. Put that in the official record, will you? Like, you don't do that, right? So, so it, 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 would, it could easily fly under the radar of the historians of the time, and it would be very much in keeping with his character. So anyway, what's the message? Why does Matthew include this story in the, the telling of the life of Jesus? Why do we need to know this? What's the message here? Well, first of all, He's telling us that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior King, who is going to deliver his people. And where do we see that? Well, in chapter 1, if you've ever seen Matthew chapter 1, it's a lineage. And what Matthew's doing there is he's saying he has the right lineage. He's descended from David. And in chapter 2, he's saying he was born in the correct place. It's what some commentators call a geographical apologetic, right? He's saying, yes, he's the Messiah. Never mind that he grew up in Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem. And also, you notice, he is receiving tribute like one of the ancient kings, uh, like Solomon did, or like Hezekiah did, like one of the great kings of Israel. And this is before he has done anything, while he's still a baby. So it's, it's saying he is the Messiah, but, and this is really key, this is really unexpected, is that he's a Messiah for all nations, not just the Jews. Where do we see that? Well, the, the Magi come, and you, you notice that God is not mentioned by name here, right? But do we see the hand of God? Well, sure. How'd they get there? There was a star in the sky that leads them to where Jesus is. Like, by the way, divination is against God's law, and yet he uses their own divination to lead them to Jesus. Isn't that amazing? So God not only guides them, he also warns them not to go back to Herod. Right? God is with these magi. He calls them to meet Jesus, and guess what? They rejoice they proclaim him king before anybody else even knows what's going on. 
we also see that the Messiah overturns the old order. Herod is right to be threatened by Jesus because here's a king who's not born in a palace, right? Like those magi, they're like, where's the son of a king going to be born? A palace. Where was he actually? He was in an ordinary house. Jesus never was at the head of an army like they expected the Messiah to be. He never even held office. He never wrote a book. The Messiah, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Messiah of all nations and he's overturning the old order. So what does this mean for who's considered in and who's considered out? It means that God wants everyone in. What Matthew is telling us is that God wants everyone in. And and as the story of Jesus unfolds, this is exactly what we see. He calls these fishermen as his disciples. He doesn't go get the scribes and Pharisees who would have been your, your top draft picks. He calls women as disciples. He called Matthew, the the writer of this gospel, was a tax collector. They were scum in their world, and Jesus calls him to be one of his apostles. He called prostitutes to be his disciples, right? You understand, rabbis didn't ask women to be their disciples. That would have been outrageous, and he's asking prostitutes. We see him, as Jane read for us earlier, he sends his apostles to the ends of the earth, right? He's not just the savior, for the Jews. He's not just the savior of, of pious Jewish men. He wants everyone in. It's not only that. As, as the New Testament unfolds, slaves become brothers, equals to the nobles, right? He, he, he changes everything. God wants everyone in. What does that mean for us today? For our little in and out groups within the church, It means that right now, God wants everyone in. Now, I'm going to make this list as offensive as I can make it, because that is in keeping. If you're offended by any of this, that would be how a first century Jew would have reacted to this story. Okay, so God wants everyone in. This includes Trump superfans, America-hating commies, uh, LGBT everything, the poor, the wealthy, the crips, the bloods, the proud boys, the proud ladies, prostitutes, fentanyl addicts, fentanyl dealers, deadbeat parents, racists, Raider fans, and, <laughs> and decent religious people too. What does that mean for us? If God wants everyone in, it means we're to come in. You, you may think of yourself as out, Right? Like, like in, in terms of God's favor and God's love and God's people, I don't belong. I'm not supposed to be here because I'm shady. I've done shady things. I've done morally bad things. Right? God wants you in. You may say my, my ethnicity, right? Like I don't, I don't fit in, in that sense. God wants you in. My marital status or, or, or my sexual preferences or, or what have you. Like that makes me out. But what the word of God is saying is that God wants you in. Now, there are those of us who think, well, I'm in. That's harder. Because 
You know, if you're sitting here saying, well, I'm in because I'm like a decent religious person and I try my best. You know, I was raised in a Christian home, therefore I'm in. That's not what makes us in. All that makes us in is the mercy of God. It's much harder for those of us who consider ourselves pretty darn good. It's harder for us to rely on mercy, to to humble ourselves and say, I'm not in and that person's out. It's saying, I am right on the same level as the fentanyl dealer. Right? God wants both of us in. And the only way in is through mercy. It also means that we welcome people in. If, if the church is to be a, be a people for God's own name, and God's heart is he wants everyone in, the truth is, is that many people don't feel welcome in many churches, right? Like, we're never going to do this perfectly. But woe to the church if we are sending unintentional messages that there are those who are in and those who are out. There are those who don't belong here. Jesus tells a parable about a feast. And whenever you see a parable of Jesus in which there's a rich guy or a king who throws a feast, that symbolizes God and the kingdom. And that this rich man throws a feast and he gets it all ready and he sends his servants out to the, the people that you would think to invite to a feast, to his equals, the other, you know, guys like him. And so his servants go to them and they say, hey, come to the feast. And all of them give a flimsy excuse. You know, oh, I just bought an ox. Literally, that's one of them. I bought an ox. I can't come. I just got married. I can't come. It's like, bring her, you know. And, but anyway, all of, all, of the, all of the people you would expect to be there say no. And so they come back and they say, hey, they all, they all said no. He's like, well, my house needs to be full. And so I want you to go out to the streets of the city. And I want you to find the beggars. I want you to find the blind, the lame, the people who wouldn't be here. Right? I want them in and, and make them come in. And so the, the servants go out and they, they bring all the people from the city who would never be invited to a feast like that. But there's still room. And so, so the, the man again sends his servants out. He says, I want my house full. You go beyond the city. You go out to, to the highways and find people there. Of course, this is symbolic of of what epiphany epiphany is all about. That God wants everyone in, not just the traditional people of God, but every nation, every person of every description. God wants everyone in. 